me jump into um, our, our message this morning. We're continuing, this is week three uh, of our series called The Basics. Uh, first week we looked at and talked about prayer. Uh, we looked at the story of Daniel, specifically his godly demeanor when it came to uh, the integrity of his heart and a man that, that sought God in prayer at least three times a day, a man that had uh, a routine, had a, a pattern and sought and, and spent time in God's presence. And then last, uh, last Sunday, we talked about the importance and the necessity of the Word of God. Um, I, I love, one of my favorite things to talk about, to preach about, um, is the Word of God. The Word of God. How many know How many know this morning the Word is alive, it is powerful, it is still useful. It's not just some ancient old book that, that we can read once and put on our shelf to collect dust. It's alive, it's powerful, still has meaning, still speaks to us today. God is still speaking to us through His Word as we read it, as we digest it. And, and so uh, left us all with a challenge last week uh, to, to make sure that we're finding time to meditate, to chew on the Word of God and allow His Word uh, to change us. And I believe that one of the primary ways that God is changing our hearts today, and I believe one of the primary ways that God is going to bring revival, uh, not only is through His church, but is through the church uh, digesting and reading uh, His Word, the Word of God, His revelation of Himself to us. Uh, starting tomorrow, uh, we will, uh, together, you're welcome to join us, you don't have to, but we'll actually be reading through the New Testament together. Um, I think we still have plans available at the Welcome Center. Uh, it'll be 10 weeks. Uh, the next 10 weeks, we will read through the New Testament as a church, as a congregation. Um, would encourage you to join us uh, on that, and that will lead us up to up to Easter, but, but that will help us begin to develop that pattern uh, and that habit. But today, I want to talk about uh, a different subject matter. I want to talk about generous hearts. We look at, uh, when we look at the basics, we talked about prayer, talked about the Word of God. Today we're going to talk about generosity uh, and how vital and important that is. Um, what if I were to tell you uh, this morning that you don't own a single thing? That everything that you have accumulated over the years, including your possessions, your wealth, your resources, relationships, and even skills that you've developed don't belong to you in the first place. They aren't yours. You aren't the owner. I wonder how most of us would respond uh, to that reality this morning. The scripture is very clear. Psalm 24, you've heard me use this verse uh, multiple times. Psalm 24, verse 1, the psalmist says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to Him, belong to God. So if we aren't the owners, if we aren't the um, owners of these resources, and they belong to God, then what is, what is our responsibility if, if we have these resources, if we have possessions and wealth and talents and, and time and the gospel that's been given to us, what is our responsibility as believers when it comes to these resources? We have been, all of us in this room, every believer, every person that confesses Christ as Lord, we have been entrusted with the task of stewarding and managing His resources. So what, is it, what does it mean to be a steward uh, of God's resources? We talk a lot about that, or maybe you've heard me say that before. Have you heard others talk about stewardship and, and, and being a steward of resources? And I think that's a term, not only do we use it uh, within the church realm, but it's used even in the business realm, talking about being stewards of the resources that have been given to us. But what does it mean to be a steward of God's resources? First of all, it means that you and I, as believers, we are accountable to God for what we do and how we handle those resources or how we handle what's been entrusted to us. 
And, and so we, we don't necessarily have to give an account to one another. At the end of the day, we are accountable first and foremost to God and God alone. And he's the one. He's the owner. We are the stewards and the managers, and we are to steward those resources in a way that is faithful and consistent with his word. Uh, the word steward actually comes from the Greek word uh, oikonomos. And this word just simply means somebody who manages a household. Actually, in ancient times, a steward didn't actually own the house, but they were the ones that would manage the house. Uh, sometimes they would be the ones to clean the floor or handle the finances. Sometimes, even in ancient biblical times, a steward was one that was kind of the public face of the household. We see this very clear early on in Scripture, in Genesis, in the story of Joseph. Uh, Joseph, if you know anything about, about Joseph, beginning in chapter 37, really to the end of Genesis, uh, Joseph uh, is sold into slavery. Uh, his brothers, um, they're jealous of him. They get rid of him. He ends up uh, in Potiphar's household and eventually ends up in Pharaoh's household. And we know that Joseph, in Genesis chapter 41, verse 40, uh, Pharaoh says to Joseph, you will be in charge of my courts. And all my people will take orders from you. Only I sitting on my throne, Pharaoh says, will have rank higher than yours. So, so Joseph became a steward or a manager of Pharaoh's household. Later on in that same text, uh, Pharaoh will say, kneel down. So Pharaoh then put Joseph in charge of all of Egypt. So we see in ancient biblical times that a steward was one who, who was the public face of the household. And, and Joseph had that specific role in Pharaoh's household. But, but here's the question I want us to, to sort of wrestle with this morning. What has been entrusted to our care? What are the resources that God has, has given to you, given to me, given to us as a church and as a body that we are to steward for God's sake or for God's purposes? Well, first of all, he's given us creation. Even in the garden, he told Adam, Adam and Eve that they were to care for the creation. They were to care for the garden. Adam had the task and the responsibility of naming all of the animals from the get-go. And they were to care for the garden, care for the creation that God had created and given to them to care for. We also know that, that God has entrusted to our care this morning certain gifts. Some of you have very specific gifts, very specific talents um, that, that, that you are to use, that you are to steward for the sake of the kingdom of God. Some of you in this room work great with your hands. I said some of you, not me, okay? I want you to catch that. Some of you work great with your hands. Some of you have great musical ability, great musical talent. Some of you are hospitable. Some of you are great at encouraging one another. Some of you in this room uh, have a heart to serve. And, and so we begin, we begin to see that God has given all of us in this room and every person he's given gifts and, and talents and resources. And, and we, God wants us to steward those, to manage those for his purpose, for his sake, or to use them to bring him glory and honor. He's given us even financial resources. He's given us time to steward. He, he, he's given us 24 hours. I know there's many of us in this room, and I've said it myself, man, I wish we had an extra hour, or I wish I, I had an extra day in the week that I could get just a few more things. And the reality is if we had an extra hour, an extra day, we would still be wishing for more. God has given us. God's given us time. He's given us 24 hours to work with in a day, and we are to steward that time faithfully and obediently, manage that time for the sake of the kingdom of God. He's also given us the gospel. He's given us his word. And, and we know from scripture that we are called to be stewards of his word, managers of his word. We are called to be ambassadors. And ambassadors do what? They represent 
They represent the king or, or, or someone else from another place. And that's what we are called to do. Our citizenship is not, not here on earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. But while we are here on earth, we are to be ambassadors. We are to represent Christ to a world that needs him desperately. And so we're called to be stewards of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now I believe if we were to comprehend the, the principle of stewardship, that God is the owner and that we are the managers of all of his resources given to us, I believe that the kingdom of God would experience incredible revival. I want you to hear that again, because I, I believe that. I believe that if we as believers, if we were to comprehend this principle of stewardship, whether it's stewarding um, our time or, or our, our, our financial resources or the gospel or even creation, I believe that if we were to comprehend this principle of stewardship, that God is the owner. The earth is the Lord's and everything therein, if we were to understand that principle, that he's the owner and then we are the managers of his resources, I truly believe that the kingdom of God would experience incredible revival. So what is God's expectation of you and me as stewards? What does he expect of us? Proverbs 11 verse 25 says, The generous will prosper, and those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. So what does God expect us as stewards. He expects generous hearts. He expects not a stingy or reluctant heart, but he expects generous hearts. Hearts that are willing to serve, willing to give, willing to participate in the kingdom of God. One of the earliest narratives in scripture, I believe, captures this principle of godly stewardship. And it may seem like an odd text to use when talking about generosity, but it reveals, I believe, the uh, the quality of a generous heart. And it's the story of Cain and Abel, all the way back in Genesis chapter 4. It's going to be up here. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 4. It's going to look at the first four verses. Genesis chapter 4 this morning, and it'll be up on the screen. Normally I read from the New Living. Today I'm reading from the, the English Standard Version, uh, at least here on this particular text. But I want you to see this text. Verse 1, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife. She conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. Verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard, listen to this, he had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard, so Cain was very angry. And his face fell. Let me, let me just kind of give you the backdrop to this story, a little bit of context into what's happening here in Genesis 4. Because we've only read the first, if you read the first three chapters, chapter 1, chapter 2 really are about creation. Um, and, and then we get into chapter 3 with the fall of man. And then all of a sudden you're, you're introduced to two sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. They were twins. Cain was a worker of the ground. Abel was a keeper of the sheep. They were brothers. They appear to, to, to bring voluntary offerings to God. Now keep in mind... Um, Keep in mind here, I said they were twins. Uh, they weren't twins. My bad. Forget that. Heresy, ignore that. Uh, Cain, uh, worker of the ground, uh, able keeper of the sheep. They were brothers. They appear to bring voluntary offerings here to God. Now keep in mind, though, when they bring these offerings, this is in Genesis chapter 4. We haven't even gotten to Exodus yet. We haven't gotten to the law yet. There's no specific law requirement that's written, that's recorded at this point when it comes to bringing an offering. It doesn't say you have to bring this type of offering, you have to bring it this way, or, or you have to bring the first of your, your flock. There's no specific instructions, at least, that we know of at the time. We do know that Abel, it says in the text, he brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Volcanus says, brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. 
We also know this. I'm, I'm just kind of rehashing what we know, and then we will kind of move backwards a little bit. God favorably received Abel's offering, but Cain's offering he rejected. Now, I don't know if, if any of you have siblings in here, um, but I think growing up, there's, there's always a sibling rivalry that's going on. It doesn't matter uh, the age difference. It doesn't matter if it's a boy and a girl. It doesn't matter if it's two boys. It doesn't matter if it's twins or not. The reality is I think just there's, there's this human nature where there's always some type of sibling rivalry going on. And, and we see that, but even to the extreme here with Cain and Abel, they both bring voluntary offerings to God. Cain, he is a worker of the ground, so he brings the, the fruit of the ground. Abel, he's, he tends to and cares for the sheep, so he brings uh, uh, the firstborn of his flock, of the fat portions, and they bring these offerings voluntarily to the Lord. And then the scripture says that God favorably received Cain's. He received it. He welcomed that offering, Cain's offering, for whatever reason he rejected. But why? I wish I had an exact answer for you, but scripture, scripture is silent on this matter. There's several possibilities, um, and there's several different directions you could go. Um, one is, some people believe that, that Cain actually brought his leftovers, and Abel brought uh, the first of his flock. And that's what it says in regards to Abel's offering. And, and many believe that, that it's very possible that, that Abel, Abel brought uh, his, his first of his flock, brought it to the Lord, and it was well received. And, and Cain brought really what was left over from the fruit of the ground, kind of the, um, you know, the, the bad fruit and, and the fruit that wasn't looking as good. He picked all the good stuff, kept it for himself, and then decided to bring the rest to God. Now again, Scripture's silent on the matter, but some believe that that's what occurred. That Cain brought leftovers, but Abel brought his best. Now, some people believe that, that Cain, when he brought his offering, he, he came with weak faith. Um, and they suggest that because in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, it speaks of Abel and his offering that he brought. And he brought it in faith, it says, in Hebrews 11, uh, the, the faith chapter. And, and so some believe that maybe Cain came with a, a very weak or hesitant faith when he approached God. Then there's some that, that say that it's possible Cain brought an offering that didn't really cost Cain much. Didn't cost him much. And for Abel, Abel brought his best, and so it cost him a lot. There was a sacrifice involved. So some believe that, that Abel brought a true sacrifice, while Cain really didn't sacrifice much. He, again, brought his leftovers. It didn't cost him much. But then there's the fourth possibility, and that is that it was a heart issue. Um, and I actually, uh, I think the strongest possibility is the heart issue. Why? Because God knew their hearts. God knows our hearts. And God knew their hearts when they came before him voluntarily to bring these offerings that were presented. We know from Scripture that, that God knows our hearts very clear. First Samuel chapter 16, when God is choosing, when he is getting ready to anoint the next king of Israel um, after Saul, Saul failed, and so now they're looking for someone else to, to select. Remember, Samuel goes to the household of Jesse. And, and he says to Jesse, I want you to bring out all your sons. I want you to put them before me, and, and I'm going to pick the next king of Israel. I'm going to anoint him today. Today in this household, the king of Israel is present. And so Samuel looks at the first son, and he's tall. He's, uh, he fits the part from an external standpoint. I mean, he's, he, he looks like a brave young man. He looks like he can fight in battle. And, and he, he, just, he has all of the external qualities that one would look for when you, when you think of a, an, an earthly king. But God says, no, it's not him. And Samuel begins to go down the list. And, and we read in 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 16, verse 7, it says this, But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or his height, uh, for I have rejected him. Um, the Lord doesn't see the things the way you see them. Listen, people judge by outward appearance, but look, 
the Lord, what does he do? He, he looks at the heart. He looks at the heart. He knows, knows our hearts. In Jeremiah 17, verse 10, But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. God knows our hearts. And so that's why I, I think probably the strongest possibility in the Canaan and Abel narrative is that there was a heart issue because God knew the heart of Cain and he knew the heart of Abel when they brought their offerings voluntarily before the Lord as a sacrifice. There are several qualities of a generous heart that believers must consider. If we're going to be faithful and obedient stewards of Jesus Christ and his resources, uh, I want to talk this morning, I, I'm going to give you a few and I'm going to give, you, give them to you quickly, but there are several um, qualities of what a generous heart should look like as believers. Number one, a generous heart understands the magnitude of God's sacrifice and love. To me, this is probably one of the most important ones that I want you to walk away with this morning. A generous heart one who is generous, one who expresses generosity, understands and embraces the magnitude of God's sacrifice in His incredible love. When we begin to understand, not just up here in our head, but when we begin to understand in our heart the magnitude of God's sacrifice and His incredible love, folks, I'll tell you, it will change how we live. It will change how generous we truly are with our time, with our resources, when we begin to understand his sacrifice and his love. Several things I want to uh, throw up there for you. First of all, to describe his magnitude and his sacrifice. Number one, listen, we know this, but let's be reminded of it this morning. Jesus left the glory of heaven to reside in a gloryless home. I want you to hear that again. Jesus left the glory of heaven to reside here on earth in a gloryless home. Home. What does scripture say? John 1.14. The word, Jesus, became flesh and he made his home among us. And so he left the glory of heaven, Jesus, the son of God, to come and to reside and live as a human being, as a servant among broken humanity. How incredible is, is his love when we begin to think that, that the perfect son of God stepped out of the glory of heaven to come and to reside and to live among you and me. We should be thankful for that. And when we begin to understand the magnitude of that sacrifice, folks, that will begin to change how we steward his resources. Number two, Jesus laid aside, listen, he laid aside his divine privileges and he took on the form of a human servant. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in the incarnation, when the Word became flesh, what did He do? He, he laid aside. He didn't stop being God. I want you to hear me out this morning. He didn't stop being God when He took on humanity. Instead, when He came in human form, what did He do? He laid aside. He chose not to operate in, in His divine privileges. Instead, chose to operate within His humanity. Scripture is clear. Philippians 2, Paul says this in what is called the Christ hymn. Though He was God... He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, what did Jesus do? He gave up his divine privileges. And he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Number three, Jesus became, this is, this is important, Jesus became poor so you and I could become rich. I'm not talking about financially poor and financially rich. I'm talking about spiritually. We can become rich. Because Jesus became... What, what, is, what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9? He says, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes, our sakes, he became poor, so that by his poverty, you and I could be made rich. How many are thankful, amen, that Jesus 
became poor so that you and I could be spiritually rich, so that we could spend eternity in his presence. He became poor so we could become rich. Number four, Jesus, he died, and I want you to hear this phrase, he died a substitutionary death. What does that mean? We all know what a substitute is. We've been in school, maybe you are a substitute, maybe you've had a substitute. What that just simply means is Jesus took our place. We were supposed to go to the cross. We, we deserved death. What did Jesus do? He died a substitutionary death. He stepped in our place and he took the penalty for you, for me, and for all of humanity. Scripture is clear. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. Peter says, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. It was not paid, listen, was not paid with mere gold or silver with which lose their value. It was paid with the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Number five, Jesus became sin for us so that you and I might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, He who knew no sin so Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, He who knew no sin, He became sin for you, for me, and all of humanity, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. For God so loved the world, what did He do? He gave His only begotten Son. Folks, when we begin to grasp the magnitude of His sacrifice, His love, folks, that should begin to stir in us a heart to serve and a heart to give back to Him. And finally, Jesus was raised to life, so that our resurrection would be made possible. How many are looking forward to our own resurrection one day when we will meet him face to face? Yes, I think, I think all of us, and there, there's a longing in our heart to experience that resurrection. Paul said, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. It's clear that generosity is a part of God's character. And folks, as we begin to grasp the magnitude of his generous love, the only worthy response to his generosity is a generous response of worship and love for him and others. When we grasp how, how great, how awesome, how magnificent his sacrifice truly is, that we, 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 we will begin to have generous hearts like none other when we begin to recognize how generous God has been to us and for us. Um, about four years, this actually popped up on, on Facebook this morning. Um, I guess in 2016, my, my dad was preaching uh, a series calling, uh, called, I believe, Giving in the Age of Grace. And uh, I, I quoted him, and I'm going to quote him again today, um, a few years later. But he said this, um, because I had posted it on Facebook and it happened to pop up this morning. I saw it uh, just before I headed up here, so I'm going to share it with you this morning. But very simply, he said this, generous givers are not people with large bank accounts, but a large view of God. Generous givers are not people with large bank accounts, but a large view of God. Large view of his magnificent and sacrificial love for you, for me, and for all of humanity. Number two, a generous heart aims to give God its very best, not its leftovers. How, how many this morning want to give God our very best? I hope all of us do this morning. God, God does not deserve, nor does he want our leftovers. He deserves our very best. Some believe, as I say, Cain possibly gave God his leftovers while Abel gave his very best from the flock. Because it says about Abel's offering that he gave uh, the firstborn of his flock, the fat portions. And so there seems to be some indication that maybe Abel is giving his very best to God while Cain is withholding his best and giving God 
leftovers. But regardless of where you fall in the Cain and Abel story, the reality is this morning is that God certainly deserves our best and nothing short of it. Why? Because He gave us His best. Folks, He gave us His Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. We see this in, in Scripture um, where, where there are those um, that should be giving their best that don't, but others do. There's a story in, in uh, Luke story, and I've, I've preached on this before, the story of the widow. We had just two small points. It says, well, Jesus was in the temple. Uh, Jesus was, was actually watching as people would bring money to the, uh, to the treasury and putting the money in, and he would watch kind of from afar. And, and, and again, remember, God knows our hearts. And so we watched the rich people dropping their gifts in the collection box, and they were all about making the loud noises. Um, and, and they would be dropping in the heavy coins and making sure that people heard it for a long distance. And Jesus was watching and he knew the hearts of those that were giving. Then a poor widow came by, and what did she do? She dropped two small coins. And let me tell you, those, those two small coins, you could not hear them if you were sitting on top of that treasury box. She dropped them in, and they barely, barely made a sound. Just a little... And yet Jesus from afar... As he watched this woman, this poor widow, approach the treasury box, she had two small little coins. And, she, and Jesus says this poor widow has given more than all the rest of those that came before her that were dropping their coins, their heavy coins in, and making a loud noise. Why? For they have given a tiny part, Jesus said, of their surplus. They gave out of their surplus. But she, poor as she is, she has given everything she has. That's all that she had to her name. Two small coins. That's all she had. It wasn't about how much she gave, but she gave her all. She gave her very best. She gave what God deserved. We aren't given resources for the purpose of hoarding those resources. We're given resources by God in order to help, in order to advance His kingdom, in order to steward them in a faithful way so that His name can be made known. We see this in, in another story in Scripture, one of the parables that Jesus tells, the parable of the talents. Remember, one man's given five, one man's given two, one man is given one. And the one with five goes away and invests them, comes back with five more. One with two invests them, comes back with more. What does the one with the one talent do? He, he, he thinks that he's doing well. And what does he do? He goes and he, he buries it, he hoards it, he keeps it. He doesn't, he doesn't want to do anything with it. He wants to make sure that he holds on to that one so that when, when the master comes back, he can say, look, I, I did well. I kept what you, you asked me to keep. And if you remember, they took the one away from him and gave it to the man who now had plenty. The, the, the truth or the principle of that story is God does not, God is not with his resources that he gives us. He doesn't want them to hoard them. He doesn't want us to, to just cling to them and not do anything. He gives us resources, whether it's time or finances or, or even his gospel, he gives us resources for the purpose of stewarding those for the kingdom of God. It's not about collecting as much as we can here. Folks, this is not our home. Our home is in heaven. And so if our desire is to collect as much as we can here on earth, when we go to meet him face to face, guess what? None of that goes with us. It's not about hoarding as much as we can here. It's about stewarding his resources for the kingdom and the sake of God. Who are we to withhold something from God, especially when that something belongs to him in the first place? Abraham, Abraham is a true testament of that. In Genesis chapter 22, God said to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your son, the one that you waited for for a very long time, the one that you prayed for, the one that, that you uh, decided to try to make happen on your own terms, the one that you had in your old age. Abraham, I want you to take the son that I promised you, Isaac. And he said to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to go up that mountain. I want you to sacrifice him, offer him up to me. And, and we see in the text that Abraham, what does he do? He, he doesn't argue with God. 
Instead, he recognizes that this son that's been given to him is given to him by God. And so if God asks me to give it back, I'm going to give it to him. He's going to honor him. So, so Abraham prepares everything, prepares the wood, and, and they begin to make the journey up the mountain. And he gets to a point on the mountain where Abraham says to his servants, you guys stay here. I and the son, or I and the lad, what does he say? We're going to go worship. Worship is sacrifice. Worship for Abraham was going to cost him something that day. Because he was going to offer up something that was special to him. But, but Abraham didn't desire to hoard on to his son. He didn't say, no, God, this is my son. You've given him to him. I'm not going to, I want to keep him for myself. Abraham said, God, you've given me this son. And, and I believe, Abraham believed that if God gave him to him and he offered him up as a, as a sacrifice, Abraham believed in his heart, God could raise Isaac from the dead if necessary. We know when he gets to the top of the mountain, and he's about ready to offer him in, out of obedience and out of worship. God provides. There's a ram in the thicket. He provides a sacrifice. He wanted to see if Abraham's heart was pure and if he honored God. Who are we to withhold something from God, especially when that something belongs to him in the first place? Number three, and I still need to move quickly this morning. A generous heart only gives to God that which is costly. David understood this principle. Uh, 2 Samuel 24, I'm just going to give you these texts and I'll read them to you quickly. At the end of uh, into 2 Samuel, says, Al-Renal said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Uh, David was, was going to prepare an offering or a sacrifice to the Lord. And, and so he goes to Al-Renal, the king, and, and tells him what's going to happen. So the king said, here, here are the oxen for the burnt offering. The threshing sledges, the yokes, the ox, oxen for the wood, all this. So King Al-Renal gives to the king. And he said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. And then the king said to Al-Renal, No, David said to Aaron, I know, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. And so, so what Aaron was saying to David was, so I'm, I'll give you the sacrifice. I'll give you the oxen. I'll give you everything you need. I'll even give you um, the altar. You don't, you don't have to pay for anything. He said, I'm just going to give it to you for free. And David says, no, I'm going to buy it from you. I'm not going to offer up to God something that costs me nothing. It's not a sacrifice, David said, unless, unless it costs me something, unless, unless there's an investment there involved. The church in Macedonia, they, they sacrificially gave even though it cost them something. They, they were some of the first ones to jump on board to support Paul and his ministry. And, and they gave sacrificially even when they had very little. They still gave because they recognized the importance of, of expanding and advancing the gospel. And in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1 uh, or verse 2, it says, they are being tested by many troubles. Speaking of the church in Macedonia, they were very poor, but they are also filled with abundant joy, which is overflowed in rich generosity. Um, they understood that principle. They understood that it cost them some. Even though they were very poor, they were very generous in their giving to the ministry of Paul because they saw the fruit of that ministry, that people's lives were being changed. And, and, and maybe you, you're familiar with this term, the principle of the tithe. The tithe involves sacrificial giving. Tithe simply means one-tenth. Um, we, we see this in several places in Scripture. Deuteronomy um, chapter 14, verse 22 says, You must set aside a tithe of your crops, one-tenth of all the crops that you harvest each year. So this is part of, this is part of the law um, that, that was given to Moses and then given to the people of Israel. And, and part of their responsibility was they were to set aside each year a tithe or a tenth of their crops that they harvest 
And they were to set them aside for the purpose of giving them or offering them up to God. That was sacrificial giving because, folks, they, they could have used all of those crops. They needed it to survive. They needed it uh, to sustain them. But, but God had asked them to give one tenth, to give a tithe of their crops. And God would continue to honor them and bless them for it. The tithe was to be given First, we see this even possibly in Abel's offering, because what does Abel do? He gives of the firstborn of the flock. This is even before uh, tithe is mentioned. There's no law that's given, but, but there is a sense where um, Abel understood the importance of giving his very best to God, giving um, what came first, the first fruits, giving it an offering up to the Lord. We see in Genesis chapter 14, uh, again, before the law is given, Abram, he will do what? He will give a tithe or a tenth uh, to a guy by the name of Melchizedek. Um, and, and, and we won't get, I don't have time to get into Melchizedek, who he was, whether he was a pre-incarnate Christ or not. Uh, but, but we see that even Abram recognized in Genesis chapter 14 of, of giving God his very best. He gave him a tithe. tithe was to, well, a tithe was given to the place of worship. Why? For the purpose of investing in God's work. 1 Corinthians 16, 20, on the first day of each week. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, you should each put aside a portion of the money that you have earned. Don't wait until I get here and then try to collect it all at once. It should be costly. It should be sacrificial. Uh, uh, they will say, Malachi will say in, in the final book of the Old Testament, bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. And if you do so, I will open up the windows of heaven for you and I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room uh, to take it in. He actually says, try it, put me to the test. I want to throw this quote up here because I think this, this really um, captures the essence. When we, when we give and when we're generous, when we have generous hearts, listen to what Dr. Daniel Dickert said. He said this, when you tithe, when you give a tenth, you'll do more with the nine-tenths and God as a partner than you will ever do with the ten-tenths of yourself. Uh, listen to that and hear that this morning. When you tithe, when you give, you will do more with the nine-tenths and God as a partner than you will ever do with the ten-tenths. By yourself. When we partner in the ministry and the work of God with what God is doing, when we're faithful, when we're generous, folks, the, the limit is, there is no limit in terms of what God can do. God will do abundantly and exceedingly more than we could ever ask or imagine because why? That's who He is. That's, his, that's part of His character. He is a generous God. A generous God who gave us His very best. We should give Him ours. Giving is an act of worship. Therefore, worship is costly. So the question we have to ask ourselves this morning, are we sacrificially giving? Do our, 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 are our hearts reflecting a generous heart, the heart that recognizes the importance of giving God a very best? Number four, and I'll move through the next two very quickly and we'll be done. Generous hearts has the ability to cause, I want you to hear this, has the ability to cause a searching heart, maybe even a callous heart, to long for Jesus. I'll tell you a story to kind of capture. Um, I'll read part of it, but I'll try to capture the story by telling you uh, as well, because this, this, we see this principle at work. A guy by the name of Lee Strobel. How many in here are familiar with Lee, Lee Strobel, the case for Christ or the case for the Creator? He was an atheist. I started off as an atheist. And he was actually working for um, a journal, a journalist for the, he was a journalist for the Chicago Tribune. And it, Lee was actually assigned uh, to report on the struggles of an impoverished inner-city family during uh, the weeks leading up to Christmas. He was a devout atheist, and he was mildly surprised by the family's attitude in spite of the circumstances. Here, here are the circumstances of this family. The, the Delgado, 60-year-old Perfecto was her name, and her granddaughters Lydia and Jenny. 
They had been burned out of their roach-infested tenement, and now they were living in a tiny two-room apartment on the west side. And Lee Strobel said, as I walked in, I couldn't believe how empty it was. There was nothing. No furniture, no rugs, nothing on the walls. There was only a small kitchen table and a small handful of rice. That's it. They were virtually devoid of possessions. In fact, the 11-year-old Lydia and the 13-year-old Jenny, they owned only one short-sleeved dress each, plus one thin gray sweater between the two of them. So when they would walk the half a mile to school in a cold, uh, cold winter day, here's what happened. They would, for the first half, Jenny would wear the sweater, and then they would get halfway to school, she would take it off, and she would give it to her sister to wear the rest of the way. That was how they lived. Despite their poverty and the painful arthritis that kept perfective from working, she still talked confidently about her faith in Jesus. She was convinced that, that he had not abandoned them. I never sensed despair or self-pity in the home, Lee Struggle said. Instead, there was a gentle feeling of hope and peace. So then he completed his article. He moved on to more high-profile assignments. But when Christmas Eve arrived, he found his thoughts drifting back to the Delgados and their unflinching belief in God's providence. And then in his words, he said this, I continue to wrestle with the irony of the situation. Here was a family that had nothing but faith, and yet seemed happy while I had everything. I needed materially, but lacked faith, and inside I felt as empty and barren as their apartment. In the middle of a snow, slow news day, he decided to actually go back and visit this family. When he arrived, he was amazed at what he saw. Readers heard about his article, they read it. So what did they do? They started bringing gifts and furniture and rugs and food and began to bless this family in incredible ways, in overwhelming fashion. They filled the apartment with these gifts. Once inside, Strobel then encountered new furniture, appliances, rugs, and a large Christmas tree, stacks of wrapped gifts and food, and a large section of warm winter clothing that they had been donated, and even cash. It wasn't the gifts, though, that shocked Lee Strobel that day. An atheist in the middle of Christmas generosity was the family's response to those gifts. Listen to what they did. Surprised as I was by this outpouring, I was even more astonished by what my visit was interrupting. Perfecta and her granddaughters were getting ready to give away much of their newfound wealth. When I asked Perfecta why, she replied in halting English, Our neighbors are still in need. We cannot have plenty while they have nothing. This is what Jesus would want us to do. That blew me away. If I had been in their position at this time in my life, I would have hoarded everything. I asked Perfecta what she thought about the generosity of the people uh, that sent all of these things. And she said, this is wonderful. This is very good. But she added, it's not the greatest gift. No, we celebrate that tomorrow. That is Jesus. To her, this child in the major was the undeserved gift that meant everything. More than material possessions, more than comfort, more than security. At that moment, something inside of him wanted desperately. Listen, this was an atheist writing. This is before he was converted to Christianity. And listen to what he said. This something in me longed, wanted desperately to know this Jesus. Because in a sense, I saw him in perfect death in her granddaughters. They had peace despite poverty. While I had anxiety despite plenty, they knew the joy of generosity. While I only knew the loneliness of ambition, they looked heavenward for hope. While I only looked out for myself, they experienced the wonder of the spiritual. While I shackled to the shallowness of the material, and something made me long for what they had, or more accurately, he said, for the one they knew. As we generously give, whether it's our time, whether it's our resources, whether it's our, our finances, we are making possible, folks, the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And who knows? Who knows? There may be a callous heart out there. There may be a searching heart out there that when they experience the generosity of a believer that flows from the generosity of a God who gave his son, who knows how that can change a heart and a life for eternity. Your generosity could very well make the difference for someone else being in the kingdom of God. Paul said, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. So two good things will result from this ministry of giving. 
The needs of believers in Jerusalem will be met, and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. Finally, generous heart seeks to build, probably my, one of my favorite ones, a generous heart seeks to build God's kingdom, not their own kingdom. I think naturally as human beings, we do everything we can to try to build our own kingdom. Try to do everything we can to, to hoard what we can, to, to, to work our way up a ladder of success or, or have more of this or more of that. But folks, again, our citizenship is not here on earth, it's in heaven. We should be all about building, not our own kingdom, building the kingdom of God. Stewards distinguish between building their own kingdom and building the kingdom of God. Our earthly kingdom is temporary, but our heavenly kingdom is eternal. So we should be working to build that eternal kingdom. Jesus says very clearly, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them, where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, Jesus says there your heart will be also. I'm going to watch about a six-minute video, and then I will close. Um, but, but I couldn't really cut it down because it really captures the heart of one who understands the importance of building the kingdom of God. So you watch this with us this morning. There are many ways of serving the Lord. Some people do great things. Some people are good teachers. Some people contribute lots and lots of money. But when we talk about this temple of rice, it is very humble. The service is done in the corner of the kitchen that nobody sees. But God knows. God bless. Every day, simple women in the state of Mizoram in Northeast India are spearheading a revolution that is sweeping the world of missions. Their movement, Bufai Town, or a handful of rice. Bufai Town is a practice where each Mizo family puts aside a handful of rice every time they cook a meal and later gather it and offer to the church. The church in turn sells the rice and generates income to support its work. Rice has been the staple food of the people of Mizoram, the main life of the people you are giving what is basic essential fundamental to your life you are sharing that with god the handful of rice ministry started in mizoram in 1910 that time many people did not know the gospel so the church thought that we need bible women to spread the gospel of jesus christ the bible women they are locally supported women for evangelism. The practice of Bufai Town is meant for supporting those by the women. This concept of Bufai Town became so popular throughout Mizoram over the years that giving was not limited to some individuals. The whole of Mizoram, rich or poor, young or old, everybody contributed to it. 
It is something which my mother has taught all of us right from when we were very young. And I feel that Bufai Chan is a piece of Christian service that anyone can do it. Today, 95% of 900,000 Mingzos are Christians. A strong and vibrant church has emerged. People started to give more and in creative ways. Rice, vegetables, firewood, and other produce, and also cash besides their regular tithes to the church. The churches in Mizoram are now self-sufficient. One such example is the Mizoram Presbyterian Church, the largest church in Mizoram with about 500,000 members. This year they are celebrating 100 years of the handful of rice ministry. received from the sale of handful of rice was rupees 80 uh, that is uh, one and a half US dollar in the year 2009 and 2010 we raised money uh, one and a half million US dollar from handful of rice offering we don't receive any outside funding all the money we have we receive is raised we can never sell at the close of this last physical year we received altogether around 13 million US dollars. Out of that, 12% of our total income is from the handful of rice collection. Today, the Mizoram Church is known as a missionary church world over. This success is attributed to their selfless and creative giving. Joram state is the most backward state in India and we are the poorest of the, of the poor but still we can raise funds for the ministry of the Lord we can support 1800 mission workers and in the meantime we can also send overseas missionaries there have been times when some churches have thought that we need to get blessings from God and the attitude has, to, has been, what can we get when we become part of the church? But here, the handful of rice offering inspires us that God has called us to share what we have with God for God's ministry. We Mizor people say, as long as we have something to eat every day, we have something to give to God every day.
Bufai Tom. If I would have just said that, I don't think any of us in this room would have any clue what I was talking about. What we see in this video, what is captured in this um, the heart of this uh, church and the heart of these that gathered together, that there was just a few who had a heart to serve, a heart of generosity, and because of their heart of generosity, you saw that many came to faith, many came to know Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ was beginning to expand in mighty and powerful ways. It started with just, see that when they first started, they get equal one dollar and a few cents, and now it was like one and a half million dollars, and it started with just those that had a heart to give, a heart to be generous, a heart that recognized that, folks, what we have belongs not to me, it belongs to God. He's called us to share what we have with Him in the work of the ministry. Yvonne, if you want to come this morning, closing, I want us to consider this question. Whose kingdom am I building? Am I building my own kingdom? So, remember, that kingdom doesn't last. There will come a day when we pass from this earth that everything that we've accumulated here on earth, it doesn't go with us, stays. It doesn't last. Or are we building God's kingdom? I think that when we begin to look at our finances, when we begin to look at how we utilize our time, when we begin to look at how we utilize and steward our resources, it'll begin to tell us whose kingdom we're really building. Where your treasure is, Jesus said, there your heart will be also. I don't think we have to go far. And this is, this is something that we all have to do. There has to be introspection. We have to look and decide and discern. Am I truly building God's kingdom? Or am I using my resources to try to build a kingdom here on earth? And then ask ourselves the question, what changes should I make to build God's kingdom? Somebody asked this question, and this, this really hit me hard to consider, just for a reflection that we all have to consider ourselves. If everyone in the kingdom of God gave at the level you are currently giving, where would the kingdom of God be? I want to be a generous giver. I want to have a heart that recognizes that, God, I know everything belongs to you. And you've called me to be a steward, manager those resources. I'm accountable to Him and Him alone. So if I want to be a generous giver, what are, what are my next steps? What do I, what, how do I move from a giver that's maybe neglectful or more stingy to a giver that's generous with my time, with my resources, whatever it may be. Number one, I have to evaluate, how do I spend my money? How do I spend my time? How do I use my resources Consider whether or not I'm building a kingdom for myself or building a kingdom for God. I have to consider the financial piece. Am I tithing the, the one-tenth? Am I giving God the, the first fruits? Am I giving God my very best? Because He deserves it. Whether it's with my money, whether it's with my time, God deserves our very best. He, he didn't give us just kind of His second best. God didn't, I'm thankful God didn't give me His leftovers. I'm thankful that He loved me so much. He gave me His best. He gave me His one and only Son. So that one day I could spend eternity with Him. Anything short of that, then we would miss out on eternity. But God gave us His very best. God is generous. If we're to have the heart and mind of Christ, if we're to reflect His attitude, we have to be generous as well.
not going to leave it up here, but you can see we talked about one way to consider even our generosity from the giving standpoint. We talked about this before. I've used this two or three times. This has helped me even to consider um, my own generosity is this, this whole ladder. Where am I? am I? Have I given before? Am I an occasional giver? Do I give intentionally? Uh, am I tithing or is God calling me to go above and beyond that? That's, that's something that, that God has to speak to you about in your heart. One thing that, that even for myself that I've considered not so much focusing on giving a certain dollar amount or a certain amount of time, but maybe considering a percentage. Maybe not just tithing our financial resources, but maybe consider tithing our time. Well, we're given, what, 24 hours in a day, so if we're going to tithe our time. It's going to seem like a lot, but if we're going to tithe our time when it comes to spending time in God's presence, we need to spend at least 2.4 hours a day in his presence. It's not just the, the financial piece, but that's part of the, the generosity we have to consider. Am I giving God my best? Consider percentage, whether it's 2%, 5%, to 10%. And maybe, you know, I know, I understand that if tithing isn't something you've even heard about, going from not doing that to 10%, that, that's a big, incredible leap. But, but ask God to work on your heart, to allow Him to check your heart. Consider how you can be a blessing to others. Maybe you tithe, maybe you get beyond the tithe, maybe even consider how you can pour into the, the work of missionaries that are overseas taking the gospel to places where the gospel has never been heard. We serve a generous God. Would you close your eyes for just a moment this morning? We serve a generous God. And I know that I want to reflect His character. I want to honor Him. Therefore, it's essential that I reflect the generosity of God to a world that is in desperate need of Jesus Christ. We're going to close with this song. Thank you. Giving God thanks. I'm not going to have you stand. Um, what I want you to do as Yvonne sings this song, I just want you, you can sing along with us, but I want you just to take a minute, uh, maybe to pray, to ask God, God, I want to have a generous heart. I want to give you my very best. I don't want to give you leftovers. Help me to understand the magnitude of your love and your sacrifice so that my heart would reflect a generous God. With your eyes closed, let's just sing this song this morning.